0: I think we're gonna, we're going to start uh, by sharing briefly our own stories. Very briefly, our own stories. Thirty seconds, um, our own story. But I'm going to let Lottie start.
1: Oh, we're both we're both examples of two kinds of trauma. Um, she's the she's uh, has events of trauma and ongoing trauma, and I have ongoing trauma only. My mother uh, put me in the crib and left me there. I think my whole childhood. So I'm one neglected baby. So I woke up, um, talk um, I, Even is, that, is that loud enough? Can you hear me okay? Yeah, you have to talk Cannot louder. hear
0: me? Yeah, you have to talk louder. Oh,
1: my goodness gracious. Have I have louder, Parkinson's okay. and my voice doesn't project and I keep forgetting that I can't be heard. So let me just, can you hear me now? Okay, I'll try to remember to, I was raised on a farm, I'll try to remember to call hogs and that'll help me. Okay, you ready? Um, I think what happened is when I was in my uh, elementary school years, I decided not to need. Let's move up on the stage. And that became. Let's go up here. Why is that there?
0: Less yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Okay. What about this? Is this on? He says it's less feedback up here. Is that better? Okay, but still, we still, still
0: have
1: still, to shout. We, st- I still have to shout. Okay. You still have to shout. So. Um, My trauma was neglect, and it's one of the most overlooked traumas there is in our country. Unless there's blood or sexual abuse, we don't think it's trauma,
0: but it is. Whereas Leda... Well, my story is event trauma, and what I want to say is that we're we're using ourselves as examples because um, most likely you have one or the other kind of trauma in your life. You either have ongoing trauma or you have event trauma in your life. And my story... Um, has both my story has ongoing trauma um, but it's the event trauma that was um, that was really uh, pivotal for me and um, my story began uh, well began at birth uh, but yeah but, um, but I found myself um, two places in my life where I really struggled with depression and the first time I was an unbeliever um, and then, uh, and ended up in a girl's uh, reform home when my um, when my mother couldn't handle me anymore due to um, a bitter battle between my parents um, and a divorce. And I ended up in that home, and I had a lady who just really loved me well, and she um, and she shared the gospel with me and asked me if I if I knew Christ, and um, I said, Well, I know who God is. And she said, but no, you have to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I said, okay, okay well then let's do that. And as I prayed the sinner's prayer with her, I felt a 40-pound, 40 40-year 40 weight lifted up off of me. At the time I was 13 years old. And, um, and I really thought at that point that Jesus was going to be my fix. And he was for a while, so I set about um, really uh, just doing the Christian thing, you know, being as good as I could, working really hard, um, uh, wanting to love my family well. I really believed that God was going to give me a new family, and he answered my prayer. My mom got remarried. Um, I had a stepdad that I, uh, that I loved, a family that I loved. And, um, and then in my early 20s, when I came home from college, that was all blown apart. When I came home from college and found my family in disarray, When I confronted my father about it, he said um, he got really angry at me. He confronted me. The confrontation got physical. He beat me until I was unconscious. And my dream of family ended when I had him taken away in handcuffs to the jail. And what happened to me from that point was that I really lost hope that Jesus was my answer. Even though I was still a Christian... Um, something broke in me and something died that day that I felt like couldn't be fixed. And from that point forward, I fell into a depression that I couldn't come out of because I thought, well, if Jesus isn't the answer, then what is? And um, I suffered from that point forward with um, what you would call, clinically speaking, post-traumatic disorder type symptoms where I would have panic attacks and have to walk into a restroom to compose myself. I stuttered. Um, I just um, had, uh, you know, there were times where I would be driving down the road and I would just think all I need to do is turn the wheel and it would be over. So um, that event in my life um, was on the end of a series of ongoing traumas in my life, but that was an event trauma that sent me spiraling down into a really deep place that I call the pit, that I couldn't pick myself back up out of until... um, until I ended up one day in a counseling room about 15 years ago. This lady right here. And, um, and for me, what I needed, because I had this event trauma in my life, what I really needed was to hear some serious truths about um, what my life, uh, w- what had happened in my life. Um, I needed a reframing and, um, and going to counseling and having someone speak truth into my life allowed me to put a definition for what had been happening to me so that I could understand and begin to heal.
1: So she walked into my office and told me her story, and?
0: And I was fixed. That's not what happened. (laughs) But what?
1: (laughs) I, I forgot that I said it, but she said my, my first words when she finished her story was... I told her
0: my story, and what happened was she said, we could really talk for each other. Can you see this? We might be doing this the whole time. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, no, we're not. Yeah, no, we're not. Um, what I said was, um, what she said was, I told her my story, and I knew that I had had fatherlessness. I knew that I was, just, I, I was heartbroken because my, I had put my hope in... Um, The other part of my story is that when my parents divorced, I didn't see my dad again from the age of of 13 on. I just didn't see him. So when my stepdad came in, he really gave me hope. And the fact that our relationship had been so broken devastated me. So I knew I had fatherlessness. I had, I had thought about all those things. But what I didn't understand was that I had a mother wound, that in the middle of all of the hurt that I really had been betrayed um, by, my, by my mother, who had left me vulnerable to, uh, to the trauma in my life. And so what she turned to me and said was, she said, I hate your mother. And I thought lightning was going to come down and strike me because it had always been my sister, my mother, and I. We were a team um, going through, uh, you know, life with my mom as a single mother. It was us against the world. And so when she said that, I really, um, I really thought the world was going to explode. But what I needed to hear it because what I needed was I needed permission to be angry. I needed to be permission to be angry that um, that I had come into. Um, it, that I had been abused really and, um, and what she did was give me permission and have you since forgiven her? I have since, I, I continue to work on it it's you know, not it's not, a, it's not a once thing it's an ongoing process Do you know there's
1: almost nothing that you can't be healed from there's nothing you can't be healed from if you name the wound and let the Holy Spirit drop into it but if you will not be in pain can you hear me back there? I'm getting paranoid now can you hear me okay? not great? yes, okay but you've got to name the wound. And so we, Scott Peck says mental illness is what we do to run away from pain. When we run away from our pain, we stay in worse kind of pain. So the reason that was important for her, she had to name the wound. And then she could bring that to the father. And then the father can, can, can um, I like to see it. I have the picture of an abscess. And you prick it. And the pus drains out. And then the Holy Spirit can get in and, and heal and revive your soul. So what is trauma? A simple definition. Uh, injury to the soul—not just injury. We all injure our children. We all injure, get injured by our parents and each other. But trauma is injury to the soul, and it's an injury that doesn't get confessed, doesn't get get um, uh, healed. Um, and I'm going to give you some examples of, of of injury to the soul because the reason I'm doing it—I'm going to insult your intelligence a minute because you think. You may think you you aren't one of those, but sometimes you get so used to something that you don't understand that it was trauma or that it was injury to your soul. Um, For example, um, domestic violence, you would certainly agree with that, which is what happened to uh, Zeleda. Sexual, physical, verbal abuse, neglect, bullying, intrusive medical procedures, serious illness, separation from a parent, um, an unstable or unsafe environment, Um, let's see hold on a minute here exposing a child wait hold on burning, punching, kicking, pinching, biting, shaking a child restraining a child with ropes those are obvious submerging a child's head in water forcing a child to eat, drink pulling hair, starving a child giving a child alcoholic beverages, leaving a child alone for long periods of time, um, telling lies about God, God's going to get you for that, uh, using scripture to go earth and manipulate your child, hypocrisy saying one thing and doing another, legalism, making them perform to be loved. Um, and the other... Um, let's see, hold on. The other abuse I want... Uh, trauma I want to introduce is the trauma of spousal abuse. And I think um, uh, the difference between verbally abusive men and physical batterers are not as great as many people believe. The behavior of either style of abuser grows from the same roots as is driven by the same thinking. One of the obstacles to recognizing chronic mistreatment relationships is that most abusive men don't simply seem like abusers. They have many good qualities including kindness, warmth, humor, especially in the early period of the relationship. The symptoms of abuse are there, and women usually see them. Uh, Escalating frequency of put-downs, early generosity, turning to selfishness. Her grievances constantly turned around on her so that everything is her fault. His growing attitude that he knows what is good for her better than she does, mounting sense of fear and intimidation. She goes off on this thing of trying to figure out what will make him happy, what will make him not hurt her. I'm mentioning that because in the Christian church, there's an increase of abuse of women and in the Presbyterian church it's tricky because I believe in the leadership of male leadership but the downside of that is sometimes male leadership is powering up rather than leading with with uh, like laying your life down for your wife so I would I would say that included in the trauma um, uh, that would cause depression there are a lot of women who are depressed because they're living in trauma every day and don't even realize it Let's see. If you were sexually abused as a child or adolescent, your soul has been wounded. As a result, instead of seeing yourself as you really are, you may have internalized the idea that you are only loved when you are sexual or maybe now uh, live with a nagging sense of defectiveness and badness that colors your world. But it's not just sexual abuse that damages us. If we lived with a father who never hurt you physically, but also never affirmed you in any way, your soul has been wounded as well. You you may see it as your inability to rest, your constant drive to succeed, or your lack of motivation to do anything. You should have, your soul has recorded the wrong message. If I was a better person, then my dad would notice me. Or perhaps for you it is. I'll never... Be able to please them so why try both kinds of wounds a traumatic event or a prolonged lack of acceptance and love are serious without the physician's care these wounds will eventually affect our lives and incapacitate us emotionally and spiritually so at some point there's a, um, a depression that you live with and if you don't if you can't name it then you have to look a little deeper to see what that is um, the, the the other abuse would be um, a bonding or attachment issues. How many of you were in the last session in the other uh, room? And how many of you were in the uh, women depression group? Okay. Um, we, I think we'll go over that again. Is that okay with you guys? Um, I think enough of you haven't seen it. We're going to talk about insecure attachment.
0: And what we want to do... Um first, we've done this the opposite way in a couple of the other talks that we've done, but I think what we want to do first is introduce uh, the video and then we'll talk about it. So uh, would you mind playing the still face experiment?
1: And it's just important to see that a secure child, this is a secure child in the video, it doesn't take much to unnerve a child and sometimes we underestimate um, how little it takes to unsettle our children.
0: So you heard what he said there at the very end we 'll play the toddler one too, but I, I just want to reiterate what he said there. the good, the bad, and the ugly, um, and that the ugly is what happens, not when the attachment piece is broken, but when there 's no reparation. And so um, part of what we 're going to be talking about is what trauma is is ongoing what we 're talking about today is ongoing trauma that has been normalized. It feels normal over the course of your life, um, but there's not been reparation and so you, and so you end up um, with symptoms um, expressed in your life and they can express themselves like depression. Um, can you play the toddler one, and then we'll ha- we'll start a dialogue about skip that. Skip the second video. You want to skip the second skip video? It.
1: Go ahead and do the insecure okay. attachment.
0: Um, so what you what you saw here was an example of what insecure attachment is and what it looks like um, when the bond is broken between mother and baby. And um, this attachment theory really came about by a lady named Anne Bowlby, who um, who is a psychologist who experienced um, a detachment between her. Um, uh, her and her mother. She noticed that she was very close to her father, but she was very disconnected from her mother and that that had implications for her for the rest of her life. So as a psychologist she went to study that, how mothers bond with their babies and what the what, how that sets the template basically for relationship, for how they do relationship and for how they view themselves and for how secure they are in forming relationships for the rest of their life. And she categorized the attachment levels into four different categories. The first one is secure attachment, and that's about 65% of the population. So about 65% of the entire population has a secure attachment. And what this means is that baby has formed a good relational bond with mom, that the baby believes and trusts that their needs will be met. That they feel secure, that they're that they're willing to explore. They they're, feel secure enough that they're able to go out, explore their world, and then return back to home base. Um, this mom who has a secure ba- baby is in tune and in touch with her baby. Um, she's quick. She's sensitive to her baby's need, and she responds consistently. And that's how you build the bond of a secure child. So um, the second one is an avoidant attachment. Um, About 20% of the population has this. Um, In this type of attachment, the bond that's formed, the baby subconsciously believes that their needs are not going to be met. And so so the baby is not very exploratory. They're not going to go out. They're not going to go see... Um, explore the world, and they're going to kind of remain emotionally distant because they don't really know whether their needs are going to be met by mom. And in this, the mom, what the mom looks like is is distant and engaged. And we're talking about the first few months of life here. So we're talking about the first year of life. Um, And the third one, it's an ambivalent attachment. About 10 to 15% of of the population has an ambivalent attachment, and, and the categories g- grow more severe as you, as you go down, so ambivalent, about 10 to 15%. Um, this child is gonna be anxious, insecure, and angry. Uh, the mother's response to her, ch- to her child's needs is gonna be inconsistent, um, sometimes sensitive, but sometimes neglectful. So sometimes the, ch- the mother is gonna be in touch with her child's needs, sometimes the mom's not gonna be in touch with the child's needs. And, um, and so the child's, uh, with the child's message is, I can't, I can't trust that my needs are going to be met. I'm not sure that my needs are going to be met. And so, um, so the baby can't rely on their needs being met. Um, the fourth one is disorganized attachment. This is about 10 to 15% of the population. This child's um, state of being is going to be depressed, angry, Completely passive, in other words, they don't have an interest in exploring their world and learning new things, and non-responsive. The mom's responsiveness to her child is extreme, erratic, neglectful, or abusive. Um, And the child really is confused because there's no strategy to have their needs met. It's kind of all over the map. They can't trust that their needs are going to be met. So this is the template for which attachment bonds are formed and how we do relationship with others. And, um, and I guess what I want to say about this piece is that as relational beings, as that we are relational people who God designed us to relate always, not just to our moms, but to our, then to our families and then to um, our, you know, our friends and then the people around us, Trauma at any point can come in and impact you at any age, and and impact your um, your ability to attach, your ability to relate. Because you know, really, as relational beings, we are always looking for. Um, we're always looking to um, to attach. We're always looking to do relationships. So when that when something comes in and rocks our world, that. Um, that gets us to a place where we're not believing that you know, that our needs will be met, we're not, we're not believing that that is possible for us anymore, we as adults, um, or in any phase of our life, can come to the place where we experience this, these symptoms that we're talking about, the depression, the anger, the, the being passive, the not being interested in your world, um, the, the not being able to go out. Doesn't that sound like depression to you? Doesn't that sound like when you look at category, categorically the symptoms of depression? So this can happen at any point, with either event or ongoing trauma.
1: Hatch says that that need is the wellspring of motivation. Need is the wellspring of motivation. If your needs aren't met, then your motivation can kind of go flat. Um, You don't live life to the fullest. You don't have dreams, and you don't feel like, wake up out in the morning with joy. And uh, if we were going to, I'm going to use the latest voice. I'm going to give you a test because you look at yourself and ask yourself if you had a sense of well-being, and that's what mother gives. And if you do, if, if, you, if you have most of these symptoms, then that means that you have some bonding issues, even now as adults. And that's what messes up marriages. Man, coming into marriage with a, a hunger and basic needs not met, then you expect something from the other one that they can never give, and it's the constant uh, uh, expectation that destroys the marriage. So would you read those characteristics of lack of sense of well-being?
0: So these are the characteristics of one with a lack of... Adult. With a lack of a sense of being. This is as an adult. So this is kind of we're translating the attachment that we just saw in the toddlers to what we experience in our lives today. So characteristics of one with a lack of sense of being. Um, The first one is a grayness of life, perhaps depression. The second one is negativity or criticalness. The third one, fear, loneliness, or incompleteness. Fourth, emotional paralysis or overly emotional. I'm going through 24 of these, so I have to keep it moving. Okay, just so you know. Um, Triteness of life, boredom or envy, self-hatred, ultra-sensitivity and hurt feelings, extreme neediness combined with distancing from others, envy or jealousy, seldom satisfied or restless, anxiety and tension, inconsistency in relationships, a lack of trust, watching life from a distance, constantly comparing, childish and immature, narcissism, which is really a clinical term for super selfish, Addictive behavior, a sense of abandonment or rejection, ambivalence towards women, series of emotionally dependent relationships or enmeshment, quest for one idealized person who will complete you, difficulty in retaining sense of being prayer, a spirit of nothingness or no sense of being. This is the last one. Has a hunger for intimacy yet detachment from appropriate relationship.
1: So if, if a lot of those are true of you, uh, you might want to um, see a counselor. Um, you know what's really interesting is Psalm 103, 1 through 5 says, Your consolation brought joy to my soul. Psalm 103, uh, that's Psalm 94, I'm sorry. 103, He heals all our diseases. Isaiah 49, 11 to 12, He says... Would a mother reject a child at her womb, perhaps, at her breast, perhaps, but I will not reject you, I've written in the palms of my hands. When my mother and father have forsaken me, I will take you up. So, but none of that happens if you don't face it, if you don't name it. You know, this isn't the, the, the purpose of looking at where you were failed isn't for blaming, but for mourning and for inviting the Holy Spirit in to heal.
0: Well, I think the interesting thing also about what Lottie just said is that in order to name it and in order to heal from it, you have to be able to see it. And the truth is, we all, walk around with a, we all walk around with two things, all of us. We all have this in common. We all walk around with a blind spot. There are things in us that we cannot see because we require a relationship in order to see them. I really believe that that's a part of God's design for us, that he designed us to be in community and relationship with others, specifically so, and we need it so that people can talk to us about what they see Because there are things in us that we can't see. So that's the first piece. The second piece is that we are creatures who love to feel good. And we really don't like to feel pain. And so we run away from our pain. And we run away from facing anything that's painful. And it is painful to talk about trauma. It's painful to talk about that what your normal was may not have been so normal. And I'll tell you in the counseling room, one of the, one of the hardest things that I have to overcome in talking to people is getting them to face that their normal maybe wasn't so normal in the sense that it wasn't so good. Because when we want to run, run away from pain, we turn we, what we say is, and, and I'll hear this so many times from people, it wasn't that bad. Or they'll say, well, I had it pretty good compared to others. And so one of the toughest things, um, I think, is for us to be able to rest and to sit in our pain, but really um, resting and sitting in our pain and allowing that um, is is part of our healing process, is what moves us towards healing.
1: Yeah, and you know, the funny thing about it is um, you're going to be in worse pain if you don't face it, but it just comes later. And so you have to decide for short-term misery and long-term bliss or short-term bliss and long-term misery. Um, but there's something really beautiful about inviting God into that pain. Um, let's see what so else. Is about how much it. time do we have?
0: How much time do we have?
1: 30 minutes. Okay. thirty minutes. How much time do we have? What time is it?
0: It's three thirty live.
1: It's three thirty.
0: Um.
1: I'm going to give you some other, um, uh, and, and we have questions answered just a minute. Other reasons for depression. Do you know that secret, unconfessed sin will make you depressed? Um, Psalm 32, 3 through 5. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Um, D. Bresden says we are as as healthy as our secrets, as sick as our secrets. Hmm, that wishful thinking. Um, James 5, 13 through 16. Confess your sins one to another. I can't tell you. My growth started when I asked my peers um, for feedback, and it was humiliating. That was when I was 40, 30 years ago, 40 years, 20 years, oh, how many years ago? That was 30 years 30 ago. 30 years ago.
0: <laughs> um,
1: there is a despair that I want to explain to you that isn't depression. Uh, there should be a despair that anybody will ever be enough to fill you up, and a despair that, any, that your way of doing life just isn't going to work. That's what you should be in despair about. not. And if you're not in despair about that, then I recommend it for you. Because that's the only time you're going to trust him and obey him when you realize your way doesn't work and nobody will be enough to fill you up. It's very freeing to accept ahead of time that people are going to reject you and then you can love them without, without a price tag. But there's something really wonderful about forgiving you, giving, forgiving you ahead of time before you hurt me. But you can't do that if you don't get grace. And by the way, you guys are all good Presbyterians, right? You probably think you understand grace. Did you know... One of the biggest things in the counseling room that, that hinders couples from being able to, to to relate and with their children effectively is not getting grace. That you think you are the sum total of your your good deeds and, and your sins define you, and you're trying to perform and trying to please God and trying to do it right. When you realize you're a mess and he's it's his strength made perfect in weakness. If that's true, then we all qualify. It's good news. There's no way. There's no. You, it's up from there, right? But if we're not comfortable with being sinners and that he's righteous, we're not. That, that maturity really is real, a growing awareness of our imperfection and growing dependency on him for perfection. If we get that, we'll, we'll, we'll release people from having to be wonderful. And then we'll be released from having to be wonderful. We'll be able to live where we are, which is a mess, as we depend on him. And giving our three fish and five loaves, he in turns into something beautiful. But if um, I'd like to give you, you have the grace test in your handout, take it. If you pass it, you flunked grace. If you answer yes to most of those questions, you don't really get grace. Now, the trick is, when you take the test, do not answer with your head. Because you're all good Presbyterians. You know the answer's in your head. But you don't live in your head, do you? You live with your gut. You know that Jesus loves you even if you're bad. But you don't, some of you don't really believe that. So answer it from your gut, from your working belief, your working system. And if you pass the test, that means you need to take another look at what the cross is about. It would be really rich for you. wish we could spend more time on it, but since we're on the speed train here, we can't do much. Um, I want to end with a prayer after they ask their questions. Does that sound well,
0: good? I, w- I want to read these. Go for um, it. So oftentimes I think in counseling we focus on um, what's broken, and which is, which is where we need to be in the counseling room because you spend a lot of time in life coping and telling yourself that it's okay, but I want to, what I want, she's going to end with something, but what I want to end with is, we talked about what it looks like to not have a sense of being, but I want to talk to you or share with you the list of what it looks like to have a sense of being. So this is where healing, this is what healing looks like. Healing looks like um, an adventure of life, experiencing life in abundance. Healing looks like an awakening Becoming real and the man or woman that God wants you to be. Healing looks like growing into completeness. Healing looks like maintaining a childlike trust, a real belief in goodness. Healing looks like having a justification for existence. In other words, you know your purpose and you know why you're here. You know that God placed you here. Um... Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. And um, the last one, living into the image of God that is not out of your own work or your own performance, but out of knowing your mess and knowing your brokenness and allowing God to come in and fix those Um, broken places. But the only way you get there is to look and see what the broken places are, and that is uncomfortable, and that is painful, and that is hard work to do.
1: And your parents' brokenness isn't what harmed you. Your parents' refusal to face their brokenness and and say, I'm sorry, grieve, that's what harmed you. Because we're going to do sin, right? But there's redemption, and if we don't confess, we don't get to have the redemption. And it's not, we can't aim for perfection. We have to aim for humility. We have to aim for, I can't do it. Jehoshaphat looked over the hill and he saw these giants. He said, they're too big. I can't conquer them. I don't know what to do. But my eyes are on you, God. God says down in verse 15, battle's mine, not yours. We're not a deal. Everything he asks us to do, we can't do. But if we say we can't do it, if we say, we name the wound and say, come get me, come get me, come get me, 95 times a day. That's it. That's the Christian life. Now, that, you can do that. You can fail. Just go ahead and lean into your failing and say, help, Lord, I can't do it. He says, the battle's mine, not yours. You just watch me rescue you. That will free you to love better, and it'll sure take care of some depression. But if you've still got it, um, I'm going to say a prayer for you. Um, may God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, exploitation of people, including those who exploited you, so that you can work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, and starvation, including your own, so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. May God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done. Questions?
0: The Franciscan Benediction. Franciscan Benediction. We did not, but it's called the Franciscan Benediction. I'll give it to you if
1: you want it. I added the including you part. You know, I wanted to apply it in case you weren't. And that, and,
0: and that maybe we could save some trees, and y'all could Google it. It's called the Franciscan Benediction.
1: If you'll give me your uh, your email, if you idea. want it. I'll put it right down here and then I'll just it's in my computer I'll just send it to you. It's a
0: good idea. Hi Pam. to about the same apply to. Yeah, I think we talked about ongoing trauma because it's the hardest to believe that you have um, ongoing trauma because ongoing trauma becomes your normal. Um, you experience ongoing trauma in your family of origin, for example, and that just is your normal you don 't know that you um, that you're experiencing the trauma until you get out into life and fall apart all of a sudden life is not working for you anymore, so I think that 's why we spent um, time on ongoing trauma event trauma usually you know you have it because it 's a specific event, and from that point forward you you can't deal so um, I would say that it both, that uh, I guess the, you know, what we talked about for trauma apply for both, but that more often people don't know that they have ongoing, they don't realize that they have ongoing trauma. They're very sure that they, but they come in knowing if they have event trauma. I hear what you're saying. You're talking about a situ like I think it's like a situational trauma. Like, um, for example, like the people who um, who were at the uh, World Trade Center when it came when it came down. But I, I would personally I would say that um, you know with every trauma there's there's a loss. Right? So even so you had the car accident, um, but what happened in the car accident that made it such you use the car accident example, which is why I'm saying it. So what happened in the car accident that made it such a um, made it something that you can't quite get over? Well, generally speaking, if you come in with a trauma and you say I had a car accident and I'm suffering from severe anxiety and I can't get over it, usually that car accident pose or whatever the thing was that happened to you, there is a loss in there somewhere. There's an interruption of, of the way that you used to do life. So it really, um, there's probably more, more if you're coming in with anxiety that's unresolved over a car accident, probably there's more to it than that. So that's the first piece. The second piece is that there's a type of therapy called EMDR, um, which I'm trained in, that they use for, um, it's uh, the most evidence-based um, uh, I guess, uh, therapy that there is for trauma. So for people who have done talk therapy or, and have done counseling and have seen their pastors and have done all the right things, but they have a specific point in trauma that they can't get over, EMDR is probably the trauma remember. that I would use for them. Or
1: can't quite remember.
0: They can't, or, or they can't quite remember. What, like they have a, a haze um, and they know something happened. They're not quite sure what it is that... Um, you know, EMDR is for them. So EMDR is what they use on war vets who have gone off to war and come back and suffer from post traumatic stress disorder. And basically, what happens when you have a trauma, an event trauma, you have a fear part, center part of your brain called the amygdala. It's basically your fight or flight response. And what happens is that those centers light up in your brain. So every time you have a memory of the trauma, those centers light up in your brain. They fire up, and you're stuck in your anxiety or your fear or you know whatever it was that you experienced at the time. It's kind of like processing your trauma all over again. So what we do in EMDR is we exercise the parts of the brain that bring the trauma points into the frontal lobe where you have a chance to organize it. And um, the frontal lobe is uh, what you use for reason. And so EMDR helps people process their trauma to go from back to front. So what we're talking about today is as the majority of the counseling that we do which is family of origin work working on you know um, Getting past your denial, naming your wounds, um, you know, grieving your losses, and, then, and, and moving into forgiveness and then moving forward. But there are places where people suffer from trauma that they can't quite get over, and so we would use something like EMDR to help them move past that.
1: I like to say we uh, lance the wound, drain the pus, and the blood of Jesus comes and covers you know he by his stripes we were healed he didn't just come to rescue us from our sins he came to rescue us from the effect of other sins on us but we have to invite him into it and that's the scary part but it's good news later Can you talk about
0: secondary trauma trauma? can't hear you she asked if you could talk about secondary trauma Is secondary trauma a real thing and what do you think about that you mean trauma because of the trauma? No, I mean like um, people that are involved people that have been in severe trauma and they start expressing um, you know, the same kind of things because of learning somebody in a are going to in severe trauma. Well, when I hear that, I have to tell you what my counselor... You want me to go ahead with that? I have to tell you what my counselor, ear, my, my counselor ears hear. And when I hear um, the, that the responders... Um, are, are now burned out. Now my question is, um, so what happened to the responders that uh, in their life that they um, got, th- that they have a, um, some, somewhere in there there's like a lack of, of self that they, they don't know what their limit is. So they're, they're self-sacrificing themselves, you know, so they're both drowning, basically. Like, you, know, you know what I mean? Like they're both going down. So for me, it's this, still the same work. It's still going back, looking at, um, if you're looking at the person who's doing the rescuing um, and who's losing themselves in the rescuing, they, um, the reason that they're losing themselves in the rescuing is because they have unfinished business that they need to attend to. So for me, it would be the same work. I would be going in and saying, so why are you losing yourself in this? Um, what, what does it mean that you, um, that you don't have enough of a sense of self that you know what your limit is and you're able to pull back and recoup when it's time? Um, so that would be some, the same word. Some other
1: options would also be that somehow you feel responsible and could be triggered to a childhood uh, experience where you felt responsible for the pain of your mother or your father or you felt responsible for too much. You would give it maybe your parents are alcoholics or it can be a, a, a sense of you already, uh, maybe you've been abused and you feel like you're less than valuable and, and maybe it's your fault that it happened even though it didn't your fault. I mean, it can be a lot, but, but you just lift up that rock and ask, ask questions and have someone help you work through it. It can be, uh, sometimes you can have the same symptom but a different cause, so you have to, you have to look a little deeper. Does that help? Okay. Thank you.